Good morning, church. Our call to worship this morning is inspired by Matthew 11:29 and Revelation 21:5. Come, all who are weary of wealth, of poverty, of power, of struggle, of division. Come, all who are heavy laden with too much, with too little, with anxiety, with fear, with anger. Come, all who have hope for liberation, for peace, for freedom, for the kingdom. Hear these words. See, I am making all things new. All right, for this next song, you're going to need instruments. So kids, adults, anybody, go grab some instruments. We're going to make some noise to the Lord. <laughs> Church. My name is Melanie. I'm an elder here at Creston. We've been praying for this time and this place, wherever you happen to be today, that you would have an encounter with the living God as we worship together. If you're joining us for the first time, you can find out more about us at our website, CrestonChurch.org. Everything that you need for today's service you can find in the weekly email. Let's join together in prayer. Creator God, Thank you for the blessing of a new day. Thank you for all the places that you have shown yourself to us this week through words of others, through a plant, through the sky, through a beautiful building. We thank you for your presence that we find everywhere and in every day. We ask your forgiveness for the times that we had a chance to stand up and to share you and to love someone and we elected not to. We pray for those opportunities to continue to come our way. We pray for everyone who's listening in their own spaces of worship, whether they are doing this on Sunday morning or Monday night or Thursday afternoon. Our prayer is still the same you be with us and you guide us, that you help us be a light to the world, and that through you we will exemplify the fruits of the Spirit. We pray that you keep each and every one of us safe, 
and we ask for your blessing on this coming week. Be with us. Amen.
Hear now this prayer of confession. God of birth, God of joy, God of life, we come to you as a people hungry for good news. We have preoccupied ourselves with pleasures and have overlooked the joy you offer us. We have been so concerned with making a living that we have missed the life you set among us. Forgive us, gracious God. Open our eyes and our ears to receive your gift. Open our lips and our hands to share it with all humanity. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. People of God at Creston, listen to this assurance of pardon with me. Hear the good news. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old life has gone a new life has begun. Know that in Jesus, God embraces you, forgives you, and strengthens you to live a renewed life. Thanks be to God.
in the coming weeks of rehab as he celebrates his 95th birthday next Wednesday. Contact the church office if you'd like to send a birthday card. Anyone is welcome. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Now, let us go to God in prayer, bringing our prayers and our griefs. Lord, our refuge and our rock, we come to you from many places, some with burdens of grief, fresh and overwhelming or old and aching, some with praises, gratitude for your intervention in difficult situations and awe at your everlasting and constant mercies, some with weariness eroded by the weight of racism, environmental disasters, the COVID-19 pandemic, constant political tacking, police brutality, uncertainty in education, and a broken justice system. We know that you are the creator, the maker of all things, and that you hold the world in your hands. You see us within the darkness of sin and in the depths of the sea. You knew us before we were born, before you created the world, and you loved us and sent your son to die, even while we were still sinners. Lord, we cry out, we mourn with Julie and Jane. We pray for healing for Ralph and for Jacob Blake. We stand with the Newmans and celebrate with the Ipples. We pray for our leaders, local, national, and global, to follow your will. And we take action to bring your kingdom within our own spheres of influence. We remember your global church and pray for our family members who are persecuted. We sit in silence and listen for the Spirit's nudging. We confess that we are broken, but you make your power perfect in weakness. You intercede for us, groaning when we cannot form prayer. We lift up these praises and these griefs alongside the rest of the global church. We long for the day of your coming, but ask you to give us the strength and endurance to follow your call on earth now. In Jesus' name, Amen. Come to me, all Come you to are me. Word and, and weary burden. and burdened, and I will give you rest. And I'll give you rest. Come to me, all you who are weary. And go in, and I'll give you wet. Hello, friends. Thanks so much for joining me for today's children's message. This time, the grown-ups are listening right along with you. I think they like children's messages, too. Right now, I'm camping at a campground. Here's a picture of what it looks like on the outside of my pop-up camper. It's kind of like a tent on wheels. Next I'm going to show you around the inside of my camper. Right behind me is my bed where Mr. Weeks and I sleep. Over on the other end of the camper is another bed where two more people could sleep. This table could be folded down even with the benches 
and make another bed. And one more person could sleep over there on that couch. Six people can sleep in this camper at night. When my kids were your age, we filled up the beds in the tent camper. Before we turned the lights out at bedtime, we could see that everyone was close by each other in our camper. Even after the lights go off, we still know that we're all there, close together. If I wake up in the middle of the night, in the dark, I remember how close we all are to each other in our tent camper. The Bible talks about camping or tenting too. When Moses was leading God's people through the desert, everyone lived in a tent. There were lots and lots of them. Look at this picture. See all the tents? God gave Moses directions for making a tent for God too. It's that big one right in the middle with all the white curtains around the outside. God wanted his people to know that he was always with them. This special worship tent, right in the middle of all their family tents, helped God's people to remember that God was always with them, right in the middle with them. Later on, when Jesus came, his special friend John wrote in the Bible that Jesus makes his dwelling inside of us and among us. That word dwelling is another word for camping or tenting. When Jesus came, he lived right in the middle of all of his friends. He was so close to them that it was like he was tenting with them. Before Jesus went back to heaven, he promised his friends that the Holy Spirit would live inside of their hearts. Just like he still lives inside of your heart and my heart today. At the very end of our Bibles, God says that when Jesus comes back someday, he will keep on living right with us, just as close as tenting and camping can make us. I hope that whenever you think of camping or tenting, you'll remember that that's how very close Jesus is to you, right with you all the time. Thanks so much for joining me for the children's message today. I love you. Hello, Kristen. Um, I miss you all. Uh, my name is Micah Sherman. Uh, it was just eight months ago when I last visited you and was able to preach for you. It seems like an eternity has passed since then. It was a, a different world we were living in. Uh, I'd like to give you a short update about my work and life. Um, a lot has happened. For those of you who, who might not know me, my name is Micah Sherman. I, I used, used to attend Creston um, about 10 years ago uh, when I was in seminary. Um, and I've been a missionary in Costa Rica since then. Uh, where I teach at a local seminary. I'm a professor of 
uh, biblical Hebrew and, and Greek and a few random Old Testament courses. Things have been going really well. I just uh, wrapped up classes this past Monday and sent in the grades. Uh, classes start again eight days from today. So I'm trying to get all that stuff ready. Uh, but it's a pleasure to be worshiping with you and to reconnect with you. Uh, an item of prayer. Both my parents have received new cancer diagnoses in the past few months. Uh, nothing new in the past month or so. I'm, I'm not adding to that, but um, yeah, my mom has been battling multiple myeloma for five years now. Uh, my dad has also, just this past June, been diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Uh, and then my mother received a diagnosis of a very aggressive form of leukemia. So between the two of them, they now have three different cancers, all of which impact the immune system. Uh, so they're in and out of hospitals all week long, all trying to dodge COVID-19. Uh, so I ask for your prayers for that. And also wisdom for me as I figure out whether or not I should go back, um, how to be a good son and a good missionary. All my courses are online, so that's one thing that would be easier. But uh, I'd really appreciate prayers for discernment. Um, for the sermon for today, I'm going to give a short introduction and then I'll read the passage and then uh, continue with the sermon. Uh, when I write a sermon, I almost always, um, it comes out of a conversation I have with students or with people at my church. We'll be having a conversation in class and it will develop into something bigger. And then I'll take those ideas and I'll try them out at my youth group. Um, I'll, I'll bring the ideas and they'll, they'll, they'll be shaped by my students and by the people at my church. So this, this sermon that comes to you today, it's a product of, of a lot of dialogue with other people in my life. Um, I want to give credit where credit is due, particularly Ro Rolando and Andres, two of my students who were really helpful and helped me think through this book of Esther. Um, also, some of my ideas come from uh, theologian Milton Acosta, who um, if you guys remember this book I, I gave to Creston as a, a symbol of, of our, um, our work together, our collaboration. It's a commentary of, of all of the Bible written by Latin American theologians and done for Latin American theologians. But Milton Acosta, he, he's the editor of the Old Testament, so he, he really shaped my thinking on this particular sermon, so I want to give him credit, too. Um, before reading Esther, Esther 4, I want to talk a bit about it, because even though Esther is a relatively well-known story in the Old Testament, uh, I think there's some details that I want to refresh your memory on. Um, so Esther is a young Jewish woman living in exile. For a large portion of Israel's history, the Israelites lived in Israel. But some big empires arose in the east, and they came conquering. There was Assyria, and then Babylon, and then Persia. Uh, right now, Persia's in control, that, that third one. These empires, they had a way of dealing with their newly conquered subjects. They would uproot them and then move them to a new place. Captives, hostages, strangers in a strange land. Uh, it was the foreigners who were in control. 
Sometimes that turned out well, sometimes not so well. So Esther's living in a foreign land. She's away from her homeland. She's probably ever never even been to Jerusalem to explore her roots. She and her people are uprooted. Additionally, Esther's an orphan. Her parents died, and her uncle Mordecai is taking care of her. Uh, then one day, King Xerxes, the king of Persia, he had a party, 180 days long. Can you imagine the hangover afterwards? Half a year. At the end, Xerxes wants his wife to come out to dance in front of all his drunk guests. And she obviously doesn't want to. So Xerxes decides to get a new queen. He has a competition. Basically, his minions go throughout the empire and collect all the beautiful young virgins of the empire. And he brings them into the royal harem. And after a year of bathing them in perfumes and essential oils, these beautiful young women go spend a night with the king to see if he likes them or not. The text does not say explicitly what goes on during this evening, but it doesn't need to. We know exactly what King Xerxes was doing. This was not a beauty pageant. Esther is not a Disney princess. Esther is basically a prisoner. A sex slave. Not a happy situation. She's not excited about going to live in a castle in the clouds. She doesn't get her own pet unicorn. She's in a difficult situation. If she so much as looks at the king wrong when he's in a bad mood, she could die. Meanwhile, outside the palace, there's a plot afoot. King Xerxes likes partying and women and drinking, but he's sort of bored with the details of running the world's biggest empire. So he has a number two, Haman. Haman can, can just run everything, so Xerxes can have more time to party. So Haman's enjoying his position of power. He likes the prestige. And he's at the palace gates, and all these people are bowing to him. Ah, oh, thank you for, for bowing to me, and thank you for that bow as well. Oh, what a lovely bow, an excellent bow. And he gets to Mordecai. Why isn't this guy bowing to me? What, why isn't he bowing? He should be bowing. This eats away at Haman. Mordecai, who again is Esther's uncle, uh, he's not bowing. Haman knows that Mordecai is Jewish, and so he decides to kill all the Jews. That's his actual train of thought. I hate Mordecai because he won't bow to me. Mordecai is Jewish. I'm going to try to kill all the Jews. Haman goes to King Xerxes, and he offers Xerxes a huge bribe, several trillion dollars in today's money. And Xerxes turns down the money, but approves the genocide. He just wants to get back to partying. It's in that context that we read Esther 4. Before I read it, let's pray.
Lord, speak to us. We are listening. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Amen. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes to him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. She doesn't know yet. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was retelling those opening chapters from Esther, I highlighted some of the details that often get passed over. The story is genuinely funny. We're supposed to be laughing as we read it. Esther has to bathe a year in perfumes and oils before meeting the king? A party that lasts half a year? Did they just stop working for half a year? Um, Almost every decision that Xerxes makes is under the influence of alcohol. 
Uh, it's like he's got his scepter in one hand and a half-empty bottle of wine in the other hand. Even Haman's evil is grotesquely absurd. One Jewish man has offended me. I will now kill them all. Even the bureaucracy is absurd. Um, the idea that someone who comes into the king's presence uninvited gets killed. Um, later in the story, Xerxes has changed his mind about the genocide. But he says, everyone knows that in our culture, once there is a law proclaimed, it can't be undone. I'd like to stop this genocide, but I can't. Uh, the, the Jewish people have to defend themselves, he says. I'll, I'll help them do it, but I can't stop the original law because all our laws are permanent. It's ridiculous. No government in the history of humanity has had a law about it being impossible to undo a law. And here we have Xerxes running his empire like this. It's hilarious. We're laughing at these people. Laughing? Because, well, if we stopped laughing, we might start crying instead. Xerxes and Haman are ridiculous, but they're also very real. The incompetence of Xerxes. How quickly he just, oh, sure, like, you're proposing we do a genocide? Like, why not? What, what could go wrong? And the, the pure evil of Haman, his, his ego, <laughs> his narcissism, we can see this in the world around us. We, we look around us, and we can see people like Xerxes and Haman. You don't have to look hard. I'm not trying to politicize this story. It, it's already very political. Xerxes and Haman were the two most powerful men in the world at that time. No competition. And portraying them like this, it, it's very political. The story of Esther isn't just a story of good versus evil. It's about powerful evil. Evil that is in control. Evil that runs the show. It's a naturally political story. I, I do, however, want to avoid making this partisan. I hope that no matter your political leanings, you can find people in power who resemble Xerxes and Haman. Maybe it's someone in the media. Maybe it's Planned Parenthood, the Trump administration, the Biden campaign. Maybe it's a multinational corporation that's wrecking the environment. Maybe it's a local government official who seems to get pleasure out of making your life miserable. Again, I, I hope that no matter your political leanings, you can think of someone who resembles Xerxes and Haman. In a world with people like Xerxes and Haman, what's a person to do? What is a Christian to do in a world like this? If Esther were like any other book in the Bible, this would be the moment where God steps in. God would speak through a dream or maybe send a prophet. 
Or maybe God would send a plague on Xerxes and Haman until they repented. That's what would happen in some other book of the Bible. But Esther is really a special case. God isn't mentioned in the book, not even once. No mention of God. And some people have wanted to toss it out of the Bible because of this. I think it belongs in the Bible, and I hope you'll see why. Um, others work hard to add God to Esther. Oh, look, God was clearly at work behind the scenes. Look, look God's here and here and here. Uh, but I think it's important to remember that the author of Esther didn't write the story in that way. The author left it ambiguous. We're put in the shoes of Mordecai and Esther. We see through their eyes. Once the story ends, then we know with 2020 hindsight what God was up to. But for the moment, Mordecai and Esther are sort of flying blind. A lot of a lot is made out of Mordecai's statement here. You have come to your royal position for such time as this. People look at that and say, look, God was planning it all from the beginning. They're ignoring the first few words of what Mordecai says. Who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this? Who knows? Who knows what God wants us to do? Who knows what God's plan is right now? Who knows? Mordecai doesn't really have a plan. He just knows that something needs to be done. Both Mordecai and Esther would love to get a message from the Lord. A quick word of guidance, a dream, something to tell them what to do. But they're flying blind. God is silent. I don't know about you, but I often feel like Esther and Mordecai. No, there's no genocide being planned against my people. But in a world filled with Xerxes and Hamans, it would be helpful to get a bit of guidance here and there. Consider the divisions in the contemporary church. There are divisions over women in leadership. Divisions over race, creed, politics, wealth, power. Divisions over infant baptism. Divisions over human sexuality. How many of these divisions in the church would be resolved overnight if Jesus just came down for an hour or two? Nothing more, just an hour or two to clarify a few things. Here's what I meant when I said blank. Here's what Paul was getting at with that verse. Here's the best interpretation of Genesis 1. Here's the best way to respond to white supremacy in the church. Here's a list of pastors who should be re removed immediately from the pulpit because they're sexual predators. It was such a relief to get a bit of guidance <laughs> from our leader. Even for something as simple as 
when will it be safe for us to do worship services in person again during this pandemic? We could really use some guidance. Instead of guidance, we get silence. And yet Mordecai and Esther found a way forward despite the silence. And they found a way forward in such a beautiful way. Mordecai's message to Esther is a reminder of her identity. You might be living outside of your homeland. You might be separated from your family. You might have a total idiot for a husband. You might have been ripped away from your culture and your people, but that doesn't change who you are. You are a Jewish woman. You are a member of God's holy people. Act accordingly. Mordecai reminds Esther of who she is. Esther, for her part, embraces her identity. And she lives out this identity through solidarity with her people. She recognizes, I am a Jewish woman. I am a part of my people. Being the queen comes with certain dangers, but also some privileges. Esther could hide in the palace, or she could come to the rescue of her people. The one option not available to her is to abandon her identity. She is a Jewish woman, and she is the queen. It's not as if she can resign in protest. She will spend the rest of her life in the king's harem. It might be a short life or a long life, but that is where she will live and die. There's no changing that. There's also no changing her identity as a member of her people. Esther has been uprooted from her ancestral land. She has been taken away from her family. She hasn't been able to attend synagogue in ages. She hasn't had a good conversation with her rabbi in who knows how long. And it's telling that her first action upon being reminded of her identity is to fast. Fasting, going without food. It's a spiritual discipline. It's an ancient practice. We, we find it mentioned multiple times in scripture. Moses fasted when he was on top of Mount Sinai, receiving the law. Jesus fasted for 40 days while in the wilderness. Fasting is not about losing weight. It isn't about punishing or neglecting your body. It's about looking at the things in my life that I need and reminding myself that I need God even more. Fasting is about turning to God to help meet some of my needs. Maybe when you're feeling anxious, you, you need to open a bottle of wine. Maybe when you're feeling lonely, you need to look at porn. 
Maybe when your life feels out of control, you, you need to have the news on all day long, or you need to scroll through Instagram for three hours straight, or you need to online shop. Maybe you need to read romance novels all day long, or maybe you need that one application on your phone. Even good things can become an addiction. Work, exercise, sex, all good things, all created by God. But when I need those things more than I need God, that's where things get unhealthy. Fasting is about hitting the reset button on our phones, on our TVs, on our Instagram accounts, on our lives. Fasting is not about food or just about food. It's about reorienting our lives and turning to God as the source of all life. It's normal to have needs. We actually do need food. But fasting is a reminder that we need God even more. Fasting, prayer, Bible reading, tithing, keeping a Sabbath. These spiritual disciplines were not designed to be yet another thing to add to our to-do list. We often think of the spiritual disciplines as a, a to-do list, a, a list of things that I, I should be doing and I'm not very good at doing, and I, I need to do them and accomplish them in order to be a good Christian. They aren't a to-do list. They're survival skills for living in exile. We've been separated from each other. We've been separated from doing church in person, separated from loved ones, separated from so many of the things that bring joy to our lives. We are in exile. We've been uprooted. Esther couldn't go to synagogue. We can't meet at the corner of Buffalo and Spencer, at least not in the same way we used to. In the chaos of the 2020 election, in the chaos of COVID, in the midst of racial strife and economic uncertainty, I invite you to consider Esther and Mordecai, how they lived out their identity. It's a call to action. Remember who you are. People of God, remember who you are. You are children of Abraham, sons of Jacob, daughters of Rachel and Leah. You are the body of Christ. That's true no matter who wins in November. That's true no matter how long the pandemic continues to rage. As you go about fighting back against the Hamans and Xerxes of the world, as you go about trying to love your neighbors well, as you seek to understand God's will when God is so frustratingly quiet, Remember who you are. Remember the identity that you have been given in Christ.
There's a book by Gary Schmidt, a Calvin College professor. It's called Pay Attention, Carter Jones. Carter Jones is a boy who's growing up and he's, he's struggling to remember some important things. And he has this authority figure in his life who keeps saying to him, remember who you are. Remember who you are, Carter Jones. After a particularly bad day, this authority figure changes what he says. Instead of saying, remember who you are, he says, remember who loves you. Carter Jones says, you got it wrong. Aren't you supposed to say, remember who you are? And this authority figure says, it's the same thing. Remembering who you are and remembering who loves you, it's the same thing. People of God, remember who loves you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only beloved son, not to destroy the world, but to redeem it, to reconcile it to himself through his blood shed on the cross. A day is coming, brothers and sisters, when there will be no more pandemics, no more riots, no more cancer, no more political parties. A day is coming when black lives actually will matter just as much to our society as they do to God. A day is coming when there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. While we wait for that day, we take comfort in the reminder of who we are and who loves us. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you love us so much. You love us with a love that, that shocks us, that awakens us, that stirs our hearts to action. God, you have put us in this world at the corner of Buffalo and Spencer. You have put us in Grand Rapids. You have put me in Costa Rica to serve you, to love our neighbors as ourselves to seek first your kingdom and its righteousness and justice. God, you have put us here. We thank you for this reminder of our identity. You have not put us here alone. We are not on our own. We are with you. We've been given a new identity. We thank you, God, for this identity an identity that's more important than, than any other. We belong to you in life and in death, in body and in soul. We belong to you. Thank you, Father. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Our worship service has come to a close, but our week is just beginning. We step out into a scary world, a world of COVID, a world of Hamans and Xerxes. We go with this identity that we have in Christ. We go with this immeasurable love from God that we have received. But living out that love, living out that identity, it's hard. We could really use some guidance. And that's why God does not send us alone. We have each other. We have the Holy Spirit. And we have this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace this day and always. Amen. Go in peace.